0: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The Keystone XL pipeline wins approval in Nebraska, but with an alternate route that gives opponents the chance to continue their struggle.
1: While I deeply appreciate the fact that TransCanada did not get their preferred route... It also opens up a huge victory for us in order to fight
0: this now at the federal level. Also, how to make sure you're buying sustainable seafood? Just
2: ask. What's the catch of the day? Well, hey, today, ocean perch, it is abundant right now. The fisheries are just killing it, bringing it in day after day. This fish was just landed yesterday morning. Beautiful fish. Today, we've got $3.99 a pound. Wow. What a great deal.
0: Celebrity chef Barton Seaver and more this week on Living on Earth.
2: Stick around.
0: From PRI and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The long-delayed Keystone XL pipeline project has cleared one of its final hurdles thanks to the Nebraska Public Service Commission concerns over global warming ignited years of conflict over this proposal to pipe carbon heavy crude over a thousand miles from the tar sands of Canada to a junction in southern Nebraska and from there a pipeline to refineries in Texas has already been finished environmental activists and landowners have fought against Keystone XL for years and the recent regulatory ruling in Nebraska has both sides claiming victory living on Earth's Jamie Kaiser has our story
3: in a three to two vote the Nebraska Public Service Commission did approve Keystone XL, but not the route pipeline company TransCanada preferred. Instead, they've signed off on the mainline alternative route, as they're calling it, which would take a detour that avoids some of the more vulnerable areas of the Ogallala Aquifer and the Nebraska Sandhills. Some of the commissioners offered written statements defending their position, but only Commissioner Crystal Rhodes spoke at the meeting itself.
4: The applicant provided insufficient evidence to
1: substantiate any positive economic impact for Nebraska from this project. There was no evidence provided that any of the jobs created by the construction
4: of this project would be given to Nebraska residents.
3: Their decision came just days after 210,000 gallons of crude oil spilled from the original Keystone pipeline, also owned by TransCanada. The Keystone XL fight is nothing new. There's been fierce controversy over its construction since the project was proposed in 2008, especially regarding the environmental impact of the Canadian tar sands oil it would carry. When former President Obama rejected TransCanada's request to build on U.S. soil in 2015, it seemed like the project had been shuttered once and for all. So environmental activists were horrified when President Donald Trump seemed to bring it back from the dead with the stroke of a pen.
5: Today, I'm pleased to announce the official approval of the presidential permit for the Keystone XL pipeline.
3: He cited its potential economic benefits.
6: When
5: completed, the Keystone XL pipeline will span 900 miles, wow, and have the capacity to deliver more than 800,000 barrels of oil per day to the Gulf Coast refinery. That's some big pipeline. The fact is that this $8 billion investment in American energy was delayed for so long, it demonstrates how our government has too often failed its citizens and companies over the past long period of time.
3: But in Nebraska, a coalition of farmers, Native Americans, and activists say even a permit from the president himself doesn't guarantee the project will pass through their state.
1: This decision today throws the entire project into a huge legal question
3: That's Jane Klebb, the founder of Bold Nebraska, a social action group committed to halting construction of the pipeline. She explained at a post-decision rally that there are avenues for appeal.
1: The pipeline route that is now on the table for the state of Nebraska has never been reviewed by the feds. And so while I deeply appreciate the fact that TransCanada did not get their preferred route, it also opens up a huge victory for us in order to fight this now at the federal level.
3: Even among pipeline opponents, emotions were mixed. The decision keeps some landowners out of the pipeline's path, but not all of them.
5: My name's Art Chandruff. Uh, Ellen and I are landowners on the route. We're disappointed today. I'm sorry. Um, you know. Got this foreign corporation coming in and stealing our land. We know it's not over. We're gonna fight them to the end. But how can our government give a foreign corporation the right to come in and take land from their citizens?
3: Ponca tribal chairman Larry Wright Jr. also spoke at the rally, where he drew parallels to another pipeline controversy.
0: A year ago, water protectors were in Standing Rock, being shot with water cannons, being gassed. Unarmed people were being uh, attacked.
3: Of course, he's referring to the standoff in North Dakota over the Dakota Access Pipeline, which is not a TransCanada project. But then he turns his attention to the recent Keystone Pipeline spill in South Dakota.
0: Now here, almost a year to a day later, we have a 200,000-gallon spill along the first route. That's what can happen right
3: here. The Nebraska Commission didn't account for that spill, or any spill. According to state law, they weren't allowed to even consider safety concerns. Apparently, they were only meant to consider whether the pipeline was in the state's public interest. But Rod Johnson, one of the commissioners who approved the project, addressed safety in his written defense anyway. He wrote, Safety was the number one issue raised at the Commission's four public meetings and in the many thousands of written comments we received during this process. TransCanada and Project Advocates have often said that the Keystone XL pipeline will be the safest in history. Nebraskans are counting on that promise, too. TransCanada President Russ Gerling said, We will conduct a careful review of the Public Service Commission's ruling while assessing how the decision could impact the cost and schedule of the project. The company is expected to decide before the year is out whether they'll move forward with Keystone XL or not. For Living on Earth, I'm Jamie Kaiser.
0: Off to Atlanta, Georgia now to check in with Peter Dykstra and what stories beyond the headlines caught his fancy. Peter's with Environmental Health News, that's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org, and he's on the line now.
5: Hi there, Peter. Hi, Steve. Here's a notable statistic for you. The number of Americans filing for federal disaster aid increased by nearly a factor of 10 this year. 4.7 million Americans, one and a half percent of the U.S. population registered with FEMA so far in 2017 in a year of tragedies, including three major hurricanes, huge wildfires in California and elsewhere, massive flooding and more.
0: Wow, that's the headcount. But what about the money total?
5: Well, they haven't tallied that up yet, but it's sure to be well up into the tens of billions. And that's not counting the thousands of extra hires FEMA has brought on to process claims and help fix the damage done. FEMA's also dealing with fighting fraudulent claims and hackers diverting some legitimate disaster payouts. So how big a
0: problem is that?
5: I haven't seen any data, but I guess it happens every time there's a lot of government cash available.
0: I guess. And with that, time now to switch topics.
5: Okay, Steve, you want to know what the head of the Catholic Church thinks is corrupt? Try me. It's climate denial. Last week, Pope Francis sent a message to the UN Climate Talks in Bonn. The pontiff called climate change one of the worst phenomena that our humanity is witnessing. He denounced what he called four perverse attitudes on climate. Negation, indifference, resignation, and trust in inadequate solutions.
0: Now, didn't a band of deniers stage their pilgrimage to the Vatican to, quote, educate the Pope a couple of years ago?
5: They did, when the papal encyclical on the environment came out in 2015.
0: Oh, yes, his call on humanity to protect and be good stewards of Earth called Laudato Si. I take it the Pope didn't grant him an audience, though, huh?
5: Yeah, not only that, but their press conference didn't even draw an audience either. And they kind of came off looking like unwise men bearing grifts.
0: <laughs> hey, uh, what piece of environmental history do you have for us this week?
5: We mentioned computer hacks earlier, so let's talk about the most infamous environmental computer hack in history.
0: I'm guessing that will be the theft of thousands of climate scientists' emails that uh, subsequently acquired the nickname
5: Climategate. Right you are. This week in 2009, it was revealed that about 10,000 emails between climatologists at the University of East Anglia and their colleagues around the world had been stolen. Those emails conveniently found their way into the hands of groups opposed to taking action on climate, who highlighted a few poorly worded and dumbly expressed exchanges between the scientists to spin the whole calculation on rising global temperatures as a giant hoax.
0: And I recall that even more conveniently, this all came out just on the eve of the major climate summit in Copenhagen.
5: Yes, and it worked out much better for climate deniers than did their pilgrimage to Rome years later. Multiple investigations cleared the climate scientists.
0: Yeah, one of them, Michael Mann, he, he wrote a powerful book called The Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars. That book explained the whole evidence in detail.
5: That's right. And then police investigations pointed inconclusively to Russian hackers. But you know, Steve, the notion that climate scientists were fraudsters hell-bent on money and power was cemented among those who desperately wanted to believe just that. It's still there, and they still trot the fiction out.
0: Hmm. Russian hackers.
5: What a concept. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Peter Dykstra is an editor with EHN.org. That's Environmental Health News and DailyClimate.org. Thanks, Peter. We'll talk soon.
5: Okay, Steve, thanks a lot. Talk to you next time.
0: And there's more on these stories at our website, loe.org. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to loe.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. The human species evolved as omnivores, gathering leaves, fruits, nuts and berries, and occasionally hunting down creatures for their flesh. And while many vegetarians have lost the taste for meat, Whole fast food empires have been built on the flavor appeal of the hamburger. But beef is hard on everything from the arteries to the environment, so now high-tech food designers have come up with the next generation of cholesterol-free burgers that don't send cattle to the slaughterhouse. One of these newish offerings is a plant-based patty being marketed as the Impossible Burger because thanks to a bit of genetic engineering, it so closely mimics ground beef that it actually bleeds like the real thing. The other day, Impossible Foods offered free samples near Harvard Square, and Living on Earth's Savannah Christensen and Noble Ingram headed over for a taste test. So Savannah and I were uh, standing in this parking
7: lot pretty close to Harvard, Uh, It's raining and there's this big crowd of students. Everyone's waiting outside of this black food truck.
1: Yeah, and every once in a while, this tray full of small burgers comes out of the truck.
7: You know, those burgers are actually impossible burgers. They look, they smell like meat, but they're entirely plant-based. And from the looks of it, they're drawing a pretty big crowd.
1: Granted, it is free food and they are students. But I do have to say, I'm a little apprehensive about trying this burger. I mean, I haven't eaten red meat in about eight years or so, and the idea of my veggie burger bleeding while I'm eating it just sounds really unappealing.
7: (laughs) You know, I also gave up eating meat a little more recently, but I have to say, I'm pretty excited about this.
1: All right, so Noble has just received his Impossible Burger.
7: I mean, look at that. It's brown. It's sort of, like, sizzly on the bottom. It's good. I mean, it's sort of, like, heavy, like, meat. You know... Dense, chewy, kind of oily.
1: Smells like barbecue, I would say. It smells good, I'm not going to lie. Here we go. Wow, yeah, it tastes like how I remember meat tasting. I don't know that I would guess that it's plant, but I'm going to let you eat the rest of this. (laughs) So every time this tray comes out, all these hungry students reach out to grab the burgers and the tray empties in no time at all. I'm actually a pretty big meat eater. I love meat. I tried to be like pescatarian for a while and that didn't work because I really missed the flavor of meat. I'm a hardcore meat eater, but I would be open to not doing so if the taste is similar. And I'm like sort of in the process of trying to become a vegetarian. So this is very exciting.
7: And you know, asking around, people's reasons for showing up are really striking. It can be anything from the political to the personal.
1: I know farming meat causes a lot of methane emissions, really, from what I hear, terrible for the environment. So I would definitely be willing to switch over to a plant-based
0: thing. I'm Muslim, so I have to try to eat halal, but I break every once in a while. So I'll if I have a, another alternative, why not?
3: For me,
7: I have a lot of friends who are vegetarian or vegan, and um, sometimes it's hard to you know, go out to eat or cook at home. So it'd be cool if there was something that was like a bridge between that.
1: And you know, many of the people that I talk to say they have environmental reasons for trying this burger. And that makes sense. The company says their goal is to reduce the carbon cost of producing meat. According to their website, they say their burger uses only a 20th of the land, a quarter of the water, and produces just an eighth of the greenhouse gases that a normal beef patty would.
7: And on top of that, people think these burgers taste good too.
1: It sort of tastes like um like a cross between real red meat and um like seitan. Um it's definitely more like meaty than seitan. It has more of that like flavor,
3: but I kind of like it better than red meat.
5: I'm from Tucson, so we eat a lot of Mexican food. And they're sort of a similar spice taste to the sort of Sonoran-inspired
2: meats that we'll make.
1: So I was reading that to make this veggie burger taste beefy and appear to bleed, the company extracts a protein called heme, which is found in blood but also in plants. And in this case, they get the heme from soy and use genetic engineering to insert it into yeast and then cultivate it in these massive tanks. So that makes the burger genetically modified.
7: You know, it sounds like this burger's got a complicated genetic background. And that's an important question to ask for anyone concerned about biological tampering with their food.
1: I'm a biology person, and um, I feel like there's a lot of mislabeling of GMOs, and that is a personal pet peeve of mine. So I'm less concerned about that and more concerned about just the quality of the ingredients in general, um, regardless if they're genetically modified or not.
7: All right, Savannah, what's the verdict?
1: Well, firstly I don't know if I would eat it again, but it does seem to be pretty popular. Yeah, I didn't
7: think it was quite beef-like, but I would definitely have it again.
1: Yeah, well, you can get it in some restaurants already for about the same price as a regular burger.
7: And I hear this is part of the New England rollout tour. They're trying to figure out if there's demand out here.
1: Well, based on what we saw today, I think there could be.
0: The Impossible Burger is just one of many engineered meat alternatives that are becoming increasingly familiar, and a tide of new biotech companies sees new opportunities in the food industry. But despite support from investors like Bill Gates, they have a long way to go before they're a staple of every kitchen. The key to mainstream success, says food activist and Fordham University communications professor Garrett Broad, will be transparency about the ingredients." Professor Broad joins us now from New York City. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks
6: so much for having me. Glad to be here.
0: So you can tell me, Garrett, have you tried the Impossible Burger? And if you did, what did you think?
6: I have tried the Impossible Burger. I had it here in New York City at one of the Bear Burger franchises. And, you know, as someone who hasn't eaten meat for about a decade or more, it was an interesting experience for me. I enjoyed it, definitely, but I don't think I'm the ideal person to tell you whether it tasted like meat or not, because it's been a long time for me.
0: Yeah, I kind of get the impression that this burger is maybe more for people who are making the transition from eating meat to a more vegetable-based diet, and it gives a chance to have that flavor. What's your thought?
6: Yeah, that really is key to the strategy of companies like Impossible Foods, as well as others in this sector. Vegetarians are not their primary market. In fact, in a lot of ways, they don't want their products to be associated with vegetarians at all. They're really aiming for those meat reducers. They're aiming for those folks who are maybe looking to switch out a meat option once, twice, three times a week. They want this to be a product that is meat. It's just meat from plants.
0: So, Garrett, right now, the Impossible Burger couldn't be sold in certain European countries because it contains genetically modified ingredients. Just what is the genetic modification involved in the Impossible Food Burger?
6: So Impossible Foods uses genetic modification in the construction of heme. Heme is found widely in both the animal and plant kingdom. And it is an ingredient that gives certain flavor and smell and texture to meat as we know it. But it's also in a variety of plant-based sources. And in fact, the Impossible Foods is getting this from a plant-based source. And In the US, we have a much longer history of accepting genetically modified foods into our food system. Europe is a different story, and they have been much more strict in terms of the treatment of genetically modified ingredients and genetically modified foods in general.
0: Now, the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, has opted not to certify the key plant protein in the Impossible Burger as grass, as generally recognized as safe. Tell me, what does that mean and how important is that distinction, do you think?
6: So, the FDA situation with Impossible Foods is a little complicated. They haven't said that the leg hemoglobin ingredient is not safe. But what they have said is that it it has not passed their generally recognized as safe requirement as yet. They're looking for more testing from the manufacturer, from Impossible Foods, to meet this what's called grass requirement. So- when people often hear, oh, FDA says this is not generally recognized as safe, they're a lot of times thinking, oh, this must mean they're saying it's unsafe. That's not what the FDA is saying. What the FDA is saying is we need more testing here to give it this designation. But I think the history of the FDA and the history of food science and technology suggests we're likely to see these ingredients getting generally recognized as safe designation. And even without all these formal designations being consumed by the public as we consume lots of things that are in these sort of gray areas from the FDA perspective.
0: So how much dough is invested in Impossible Foods and the other meat alternatives generally, do you think?
6: Well, do you think is the big important part of that question? Because a lot of this stuff is things that we don't know, right? These are private companies that keep information about funding pretty tight to the vest. We do know that Impossible Foods had a recent funding round that was in the $75 million range. So they've had a couple hundred million dollars put into them at this point. Other companies in this space, like Beyond Meat, have gotten you know several tens and hundreds of million dollars investment from a variety of venture capitalists. But a lot of the entrepreneurs won't tell us exactly what they're working with. So what
0: are environmental groups and food activists saying about impossible foods and uh, the Beyond Burger and so forth?
6: I don't think that environmental groups and food activists speak with a unified voice on this topic. There are some who are generally supportive of this development in large part because they recognize the environmental harms that are caused by contemporary animal food production. However, there are certainly some other groups that have raised concerns. Friends of the Earth is one of the more vocal in this arena, and they are concerned as much about process as they are about product. They have concerns about sort of who is making decisions about what we're going to eat and the transparency in the regulatory process. And, you know, some of these groups have just general skepticism and concern about genetic modification specifically, which they see as potentially environmentally harmful, potentially harmful to human health, but also a lot of their critique is about sort of who controls food, who's the driving forces of our food system.
0: So Garrett, uh, my crew was lucky that they got to have an Impossible Burger. I've yet to have one. I did get to try a Beyond Burger. And what I wanna ask is how how long is it gonna take for these plant-based burgers from a biotech company like Impossible Foods to make it beyond the specialty restaurant, beyond the specialty uh, food aisle of of right now. I mean, you can get these in upscale grocery stores, but not usually the neighborhood ones.
6: So we've seen a lot of growth in just a few years. I mean, plant-based replacements, remember, have been around a long time, right? We've had veggie burgers, we've had tofu and tempeh, but we've seen those have had a very limited market share, right? And so these folks who are doing these plant-based burgers are seeing significant growth over just the last few years. But as you say, much of that has been at, you know, upper end grocery stores or at upper end restaurants. Some of that's changing. So Beyond Meat, which you've mentioned, has a deal with Safeway. And so they're now at some major mass market grocery stores up and down California primarily. You know, you've also seen folks like Richard Branson, who's invested some money into kind of the future of food space in general, say things like, you know, in 30 years, he doesn't think we'll be eating real, quote unquote, real animal protein at all. I think that's probably an (laughs) overstatement, but I do think that it's important to remember the way that our Conventional meat is in many ways subsidized to keep the cost low, right? And so if we paid the full cost of a beef hamburger, taking into consideration all of the costs to environment, to potentially health, you know, that couple dollar burger from McDonald's really costs more. And so that's an argument that these folks make too. You know, if we were able to have a level playing field here, these prices could get to parity even quicker, but there is still a way to go. And I think that's something that with scale and with time, I think, yeah, something like a quarter of the market in the next 20, 30 years, that would be huge going from this very niche space that we're in now.
0: Garrett Broad is a professor of communications and media studies at Fordham University when he's not cooking various meat alternatives. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today.
6: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Late one morning on a brisk fall day, we've come to Portland, Maine to talk with celebrity chef and author Barton Seaver. His new 500-page book is called American Seafood, Heritage, Culture, and Cookery from Sea to Shining Sea. And he asked us to meet him at a popular fish market that backs onto a dock loaded with lobster traps and buckets of bait fish. Inside the market, it seems there is fish and ice everywhere.
2: So, we can start over here on this wall and see 20 kinds of oysters. Johns River, Nunsuch, Winnegans, you've got Damarscadas, you've got Dodge Cove, Glidden, Wiley. I mean, these are some of the the truly charismatic places of the main coast. Each of these representing a marroir, if you will. Each oyster a taste of the people, the place, the tides, the currents, the history. You can see the different environments uh, reflected quite literally in the shape of the oyster shells and the color of them. You see here these nunsuch have a, a green hue to them. That's a marine algae that grows on the outside.
0: I enjoy oysters, but I've never actually tried to shuck one at home. If I bought these, what would I have to do to open it once I got them home?
2: There is the fact that most Americans are put off by that this is food that Inconveniently comes wrapped inside of a rock. (laughs) But, you know, oysters were once the most popular food in America. I mean, they were the food of both the rich and the poor. Penny oyster bars lined the Lower East Side, you know, uh, carts, saloons, uh, you know, speakeasies that that, uh, celebrated this culture. So, something interesting I'd like to point out to you as we walk over to the filet fish case here, they got 25 different kinds of fish. Half of them are orange, meaning half of them are salmon-type arctic char. You've got farm salmon coming from four different countries. You've got two different kinds of uh, wild salmon coming from Alaska. You've got trout in the back there, which is a, a salmonid relative. So our species preference in America is really very limited. Americans love shrimp, tuna, and salmon. Over 65% of our total consumption of seafood in this country is just those three varieties. Okay, thank you very much, you have a great day. But what's great about this market is that, yeah, you've got farmed salmon from Chile, from the Faroe Islands, you've got king salmon and coho coming from Alaska. Next to it, you've got halibut and haddock, you've got bluefish, you've got cod, cusk, a member of the cod family. So interwoven between this international commodity seafood trade, is the heritage, is, is the fish, the very backbone upon which New England and her communities were founded. Cod is to New England as cotton was to the south. You know, it was the commodity upon which the wealth of this nation first began to accumulate. It was how we began to take our first steps towards independence by becoming a mercantile nation. We continue over and right in front of us is a representation of our bio region in the form of whole fish most chefs have never seen or worked with whole fish really? let alone consumers
0: so i want a little advice from you for about fish buying i'm not an expert at all on this but i'm looking at this mackerel and it looks really great for some reason it's shiny and What should the buyer of seafood, especially whole seafood, be looking for? Aside from using one's nose, of course.
2: You look at the eyes. Basically what you're looking for in summary is vibrancy. You want it to look as close to living as possible. And here with the mackerel, you still see this little murderous, underslung jaw as though it's still trying to intimidate you. You see this flesh, you see that it bounces back with gentle pressure, meaning that it's still firm. And you see that in this really gentle light, That we're under here you see that it's reflective this thing is close to alive it is a you know a shiny beautiful gorgeous specimen and if you can't say that about the fish i don't think it's worth buying
0: barton at one point in life i heard someone say you know the best fish to buy at the market is the cheapest why because it's the freshest they have the most the most anxious to get rid of what do you think of that old saw
2: uh, cheapest might not be the best way to go, but certainly the question there is, is what's the catch of the day? Well, hey, today, ocean perch, it is abundant right now. The fisheries are just killing it, bringing it in day after day. This fish was just landed on the exchange here in Portland just yesterday morning. Beautiful fish, just out of rigor. Today we've got it for 3.99 a pound. Wow, what a great deal.
0: And it seems to be about the cheapest fish here.
2: There's that benefit too. But what we do, is, when we walk into a a grocery store, into really any retail scenario, and we say, my recipe says Red Snapper, we are making demands not only of this business, we are making demands of fishermen beyond that serve this business, and ultimately of the ecosystem. And when we act with such hubris, to think that it's our place to tell ecosystems and fishermen only what we're willing to eat, rather than ask of them what they are able to supply we are creating inherently unsustainable systems
0: well we've been trained with factory farming i mean i don't know as consumers that we're really trained to think about buying what's available and what's smart as opposed to what the recipe book says
2: we're beginning to get there you know and and to be quite honest i mean one of the great victories in uh, of humankind is the fact that we're able to produce so much food. And there's a lot of controversy about how we do it, but the fact that we're able to feed so many is a victory.
0: Frankly, I do enjoy eating, I gotta admit it. Yeah,
2: hey, I do too, you know? But um, I think people are beginning to sense that through food we connect to civic social virtues, values in ways that are very exciting that make food an exploratory opportunity, not just a satiation exercise.
0: Bart and I grew up in Boston, and um, close family friends, uh, the dad worked as a longshoreman, and would bring mackerel home to cook and fry. I don't think, since I was a teenager, I've seen a whole mackerel.
2: Well, why don't we uh, pick some of those up and uh, take them back to my kitchen, and we'll help uh, relive some of those memories for you.
0: All right. Chef Barton Seaver takes us home to share his secrets for savory seafood. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned.
4: Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from a friend of Sailors for the Sea, working with boaters to restore ocean health.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. We've come to the 200-year-old home of celebrity chef Barton Seaver. It's just up the hill from a main coast harbor, and just inside the door, there's an old-time Victrola that Barton has cranked up to give us a bit of King Oliver and his Creole jazz band. And while his kitchen fits nicely into the antique decor, it is strictly modern for Barton when it comes to the cooking.
2: So. You were asking earlier about how uh, how to open an oyster. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, it is one of the only foods we eat that comes inside of a rock. And uh, the way to open it is to take the rock in one hand, take a sharp object, basically sort of a shank in another hand, point the shank directly at your other hand, and then pry with strength. There's a reason why people are pretty intimidated by this. <laughs> so we picked up The two different uh, provenances of oysters here. So this is the nonsuch oyster on my friend, Abigail Carroll. She grows these smaller oysters, beautiful shell hinge on them. And these are wild oysters from Damariscata, a powerful uh, tidal river up the coast. And you can see they're just a little bit more unruly in their shape and form and size. And well, they're a little bit dirtier, doesn't make them any less, any less delicious. In fact, they both will give off their own charm and unique qualities. And that's the whole point of an oyster.
0: What's the secret here, Barton? You got right into that oyster, no
2: problem. Well, the two shells are held together by the adductor muscle right in the center. When you look at an oyster, you think it's it's the round little disc in the middle. That's actually the same muscle that you... That's what we would call a scallop in the scallop animal. In that animal, though, we only eat that muscle. That muscle holds the two shells together. The top shell is flat, bottom shell cupped, holds the body of the oyster. You go in through the very back of them where the shells meet in the hinge. And once you get the knife between the shells, use a twisting leverage to separate them just enough so that you can get the flat angle of the knife to then slide along the underside of the top shell and thus slice the adductor muscle free. At that point, the oyster is connected to the bottom shell by that same muscle. You scoop out from below, and then you have an oyster sitting there, jiggling with all of that fresh, beautiful brine and liquor.
0: My mouth is watering already. Well, thank you. Mm. Wow, just fresh, little touch of seawater, really bright.
2: No so name. that was the wild damerscata. This is the nunsuch oyster. Same species of oyster.
0: even more intense flavor to this one with a sort of sweet finish to it. So, um, you're from the Tidewater area,
2: Chesapeake? Born and raised son of the Chesapeake, but really a, a son of downtown DC during a relatively tough time in its history during the, uh, mid-late 80s when, uh, crack had just really hit as an ep- epidemic. So as, a uh, means to escape some of that during the summer. We spend a lot of our time down on the Chesapeake Bay, a tributary of called the Patuxent River. There I learned my appreciation for seafood and uh, also learned my understanding of the bounty of waters and created in my mind what, what you call my baseline, what I understand bounty in this world to be. And it's a real interesting thing in conservation is that we create an idea of what we think is normal based on our experiences and then we fight. We fight with all that we are to sustain that, to get back to that normal, but in many cases that normal is so far from pristine or pure or truly sustainable that uh, when we talk about ecological baselines or even social baselines, we get to the question about sustainability is that what is it that we are trying to sustain at the end of the day? From a biological standpoint, we often have no true understanding of of what level of biomass or of diversity that we're trying to restore, really. But when it comes to a social baseline, I think that's where sustainability becomes understandable. It becomes actionable, measurable, and valuable. Because what I'm trying to sustain is 5,600 individual licensed owner-operator lobstermen and women along this coast. I'm trying to sustain my neighbors. I'm trying to sustain the fisheries that have forever, since white man populated this area, sustained these communities. And when I say sustain, we're talking about fisheries here. Uh, A lot of people don't understand what a fishery is, though. And I I want you and your listeners to, to practice an exercise for you. Close your eyes and picture a farm. Rows of corn, autumn, splendor, setting sunlight, red barn, gently reflecting back, a one-and-a-half-lane dirt road trailing off into the distance. Iconic America. The amber waves of grain, the fruited plain. That was easy. I mean, it is rooted within us. Now close your eyes and picture a fishery. It's
0: dockside. For me, it's dockside. It's Boston. is an area that uh, fishing boats, I don't know if they land so much there anymore, but they used to land when I was was little, and it's noisy, and there's lots of wooden boxes of men running around with uh, hand trucks and, and hollering and ice and, and water splashing everywhere.
2: Um, well, this is what people don't often understand. You, what you just described is, is an industry. It is people, it is action, it is movement, it is an economy. Too often we stand on that dock and we gaze wistfully out at the wine dark sea and think that a fishery is something that happens over the horizon of our attentions. But you're right, a fishery, you stand on that dock and you hear the sound of those jobs in motion. You turn around, you look at the houses and the schools and the roads and the quality of life for those people living in that community. And a fishery to me is the ability for a son or a daughter to follow in five generations bootsteps onto the helm of that boat to take care of the heritage and legacy of their family. And when we talk about sustainability, if we talk in those terms of saving things that we as humans value, then the ecosystems become the tool by which we remain resilient. And in that way, I think we turn sustainability around to really be human interest rather than a separate ecological interest And I think this is where we make it actionable. We take an oyster in our hands, we slurp it down with a local beer, and we say, wait a minute, that's environmentalism? On the half shell with a six-pack? Hey, Steve, I'm in, buddy.
0: (laughs) Unfortunately, as I think about it, uh, that place that I I recall from a kid, I, I think it's a hotel
2: now. That's... Part of the the hard truth of fisheries is that they happen on very valuable property. So every good fish butcher is going to have their own chosen knife. I've got mine that's been with me for 15 years, almost 20 at this point actually. So Spanish mackerel, just a, a very shallow slice right behind the nape. Right behind the gill plate. Draw the knife straight through. One simple, straight, easy cut. Flip the fillet over. No gaping, beautiful, just milky white flesh. Didn't even eviscerate the fish. There's just, it's so fresh and its texture is so clean. And that's it. Filleting a fish. And I love coming home with whole fish because I'll either make stock with the, the head and the the bones here, but more likely that will end up in the compost fertilizing next year's tomato crops. One of the things I love about mackerel is the bone structure is so simple, one might call it satisfying, so that a simple slice on either side of the bones that run directly down the middle of the fish, I don't puncture the skin or go through, and then a simple flip of the knife underneath, and I can just peel back in one strip all of the bones encased in a very thin sort of sheath of flesh and it keeps the entire filet intact beautiful boneless cooks evenly that golden mottled skin with reflective silvery cutaneous uh, fat just beautiful fish beautiful fish i like to heavily season mackerel the flesh is so fatty at this time of year as they've been stalking with those little murderous underslung jaws, the alewives and capelin and all sorts of fish up and down the coast as they've been marauding schools of bait fish. And they're so fatty that the salt is needed to kind of tense up the fish and to bring it together so that it has a a nice density uh, when it cooks out. So like with all fish, I tend to leave it to salt uh, for about 20 minutes. So the salt penetrates evenly doesn't just sit on top, but actually becomes part of the structure, part of the texture, and really if, has its chemical effect all the way throughout, adding to that density. Next ingredient, well, this is fresh garlic straight out of straight out of our garden. It's a type of garlic called music. All right. Now we just enjoy some of this beer until uh, that salt kind of kicks in, and we'll start sauteing up. So we're doing a very simple, straightforward dish. Might sound a little complicated, but it's kind of four ingredients. You got your fish, we're gonna saute it in butter, herbs and lemon. Well, then I'm gonna add a fifth ingredient, just for you, Steve. We're gonna uh, we're gonna blow this up.
0: <laughs> blow this up, Barton?
2: Yeah, well, this is New England. So I'll throw some rum on there, just at the very end, do a little flambe, just to get your spirits rolling. So the butter's going in. then the lemon, herbs and garlic, and then into each goes the filet. I use the herbs to baste the filets with some of that brown garlic infused butter, rub that onto the fish a little bit. You see the uh, lemons beginning to caramelize, a beautiful, the rim of burned just beginning to uh, it smells incredible and now I take that fish you can see it it didn't even have a an idea of sticking to the pan one of the keys there is using high heat but that fish is going to be cooked through here in just under five minutes or so and then Steve once for New England Okay. I'll turn the burner back on here, give myself a little, give myself a little room. Now we're gonna flambe this. So I'm gonna give this a shot of rum. This is good old Havana. And so, a little bit of butter right on top. It'll melt in, create that sauce. Take that caramelized lemon, drizzle it over to finish it out there we go, pan-seared mackerel with herbs and shot of rum.
0: Wow, you make it look so easy, but it's not.
2: You know, truth be told, let, let's take some things out of this recipe. Let's take out the booze, let's even take out the garlic, and heck. You can even take out the herbs, or the lemon. And what you've got here is a cast iron pan. You've got a beautiful piece of fresh fish catch of the day down there. The best looking fish they had at the market. Bring it back up here. What is it? It's fatty, late autumn, beautiful mackerel. So rich that fat renders off on your fingers just by the touch. Salt it and just let the salt sit until it absorbs deeply into the flesh. Saute it in a hot pan in nothing but butter. Let that skin crisp up just three minutes till it begins to just show a little bit of doneness along the sides. Turn it over and turn the heat off. Wait another three minutes. It's cooked all the way through gentle, slow. And you have a beautiful piece of fish that tastes like everything beautiful the ocean has to offer. Bottom line is, cooking good fish is as simple as this. Buy good fish.
0: All right. So what's the word, bon? The second word is appetit? Appetit. don't need a knife for this. Ooh. Okay, this is not your uh, fried mackerel. This is amazing mackerel. It literally melts in my mouth, and yet it has that little kick that mackerel is. A little sense of oil and ocean and and effort or something that's in that.
2: It's the taste of vigor. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. These are active, strong, beautiful, dart-like fish that... Can swim at ungodly speeds. You know, they wow, are they amazing in the water and amazing out of the water? You know, when we go to the fish market, it's so important to just ask what's the catch of the day to participate in a to behave in a sustainable manner. Once we walk through the door. If we come in with our carrying our own demands of fishermen, of the fish market, of the oceans themselves, demanding only what we're willing to eat rather than asking of them what they are willing and able to supply, we walk out with the best piece of fish that we can. But in order to do that, in order to really enjoy this fish, we we have to practice liking them. We have to practice understanding and knowing their flavors and their, their charisma and their character. And we're not accustomed as a culture, to liking mackerel or liking sardines even anymore. Mackerel is once the most important, valuable, and and favored fish in all of the land. You know, if we shipped the salt cod overseas, the mackerel that stayed in the kitchens here. It's actually pretty good.
6: Mm
0: -hmm. Mm. Barton Seaver's new book is called American Seafood, Heritage, Culture, and Cookery from Sea to Shining Sea. Barton, thank you so much for this, well, delicious encounter.
2: It's such a pleasure. And and what a way to end it. A little jazz and a great meal.
0: Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Savannah Christensen, Jenny Doring, Noble Ingram, Jamie Kaiser, Don Lyman, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from John Gesso and Jake Rigo. Allison learish composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from @LivingOnEarth. Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood.
4: Serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy. From Gilman Ordway and from Solar City, America's solar power provider, Solar City is dedicated to revolutionizing the way energy is delivered by giving customers a renewable alternative to fossil fuels. Information at 888 997 1703. That's 888 997
6: 1703. PRI.